Good morning, Mountain Park. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here with us today. I am one of the pastors here, and my name is... Yes! Now say the last name. Some different versions there. Van Amarongen. Yes, and, and if you, if you, a lot of you, you know me, you've come, you've seen, so you know how to pronounce my name. But, but for those who have never, never known me, never seen me, never gotten to know my name, then you would look at my first name and say that my name is Jan, right? Now, this is not a new experience for me. I've dealt with this my whole entire life. I knew from the very first day I set foot in a school and the teacher called out Jan. And all the kids, knowing as me, went, hee, 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 right? And every time there's a substitute teacher, every first day of class, elementary school, all the kids running up to me and going, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. And if you know the Brady Bunch, you know that reference, right? And this is, I've dealt with this my whole life, right? And, but, but I remember, and I just know, I just know that when somebody is pronouncing my name for the first time, we are on shaky ground, okay? We're on shaky ground when that happens. So this one time I was in Houston, I had just moved there, I was getting a new bank account set up, and I was meeting with this lady, she was across the desk, and we were filling out the forms, and put my name in, and get all those forms, and she gets up, and she gets ready to take those forms to the back, and, and she stops, and she looks at the forms, and she says, so your name's Jan, right? <laughs> and, you know, again, this is not new to me, it's normal, so I, yeah, uh, actually, no, it, it's, it's spelled J-A-N, but it's pronounced Jan, and she looks at the form, and she says, Honey, you're in America now, and it is Jan. <laughs> now, normally I don't get offended when people mispronounce my name. And I could have just said, you know what? You're right. I forgot that I was born in Seattle and spent my entire life in the United States. Thank you for reminding me that I'm in America. And you know, it is just, a, it is just such a, a problem that I always have to correct people on how to say my name. So you're right, I'm just gonna go by Jan. That is not the thought that came into my head. The thought that came into my head is who the blankety blank do you think you are? What gives you the right to tell me how to pronounce my name? What, by what authority do you decide that you can tell me? And you know what? If anyone has authority, I have the authority to tell you how to pronounce my name, not the other way around. Has that ever happened to you where someone kind of comes in and imposes their authority and you get frustrated or angry and I left the bank in that case, did not give them my money? Never happened. And sometimes it's justified, right? Like in that instance, it was, I think it was totally justified. But other times, we just don't like people telling us what to do. And it just makes us frustrated or angry. We've been looking at this uh, book. We've been looking at the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, in this series called The Kingdom, because throughout the book of Matthew, we see Jesus referring to this thing called the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And sometimes he calls it the kingdom of heaven. Those two terms are interchangeable. And, and last week, uh, uh, Alan explained that the kingdom means that we are living our life with Jesus as king. That if we don't believe there's a throne, if, 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 we don't, if we put anything else on that throne, ourselves, success, anything else, then we are outside the kingdom, the kingdom of God as he teaches it. That the kingdom means that Jesus and Jesus alone is on the throne. And as, as Americans, this is a real stretch for us because we, we didn't grow up with, with kingdoms. We didn't grow up with kings and queens unless we're playing poker, 
right? We, 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 in fact, we look down on the monarchy, right? We see the monarchy as a flawed, flawed system. We overthrew a monarchy and replaced it with what we view as a much better system of government. But it's not just that we view the, 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 the monarchy philosophically as flawed or as a problem or, or, or politically as a problem. I think that we actually are personal, can be personally offended by the idea of a monarchy, by the idea of a kingdom. Because the whole idea of a kingdom is that there is one king. One king who has the right to exercise authority however they see fit over everybody else. And if you're like me, and you struggle when other people assert authority over you, that can be a challenge. But if we are, go and, and, and part of that is because we think that when we entrust one person with all of that power, we're on shaky ground. It's shaky ground to entrust one person with all of that power. But if we're going to understand what it means to live in the kingdom of God, we have to understand what it means to live with Jesus on the throne. And as we dig into this concept today, we're going to find that when we rely on Jesus's authority, when we trust Jesus as our king, we are on the most solid ground there could ever be. So we'll be looking in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. If you have your Bibles here, you want to open to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. But first, I want to take some time and pray. Well, Lord, I come to you and I recognize that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and that you are not a king who is far away, but that you are a king who came close, who lived and died and was resurrected. And you are the king who is here in this room today. And so I give all that I am to you. And I say, would you be the king of everything that is spoken today? Would you be the king of our hearts today? We give this time to you, Jesus. King Jesus, we love you. Amen. So uh, we'll be starting our, uh, uh, well, our main text begins in verse 24. Um, and and we, as we've been walking through the um, uh, the book of Matthew, we've been using these journals. Some of you may have picked them up. And these journals just have some daily readings. It's a great way to stay in contact and, and connect with the idea of the kingdom of God throughout the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, if you don't have one yet, I encourage you to pick one up. They're five bucks in the lobby. If you're new today, just turn on your communication card and they'll give you one for free. And if you've been following these journals, you've been going through the Sermon on the Mount this past week. And we're picking up near the end of the Sermon on the Mount there in verse 24. But that verse starts with a very, very important word. It's the word, therefore. It's an important word. And whenever we see the word, therefore, we need to find out what it is there for. Okay? It's always important to understand context when you're reading the Bible, the context of any scripture. But when there's a word therefore, it's especially crucial that we go back and find out what's really going on. And so what we see is we, is we pull back and look at the context in chapters 5 and 6 in the beginning of 7. Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount and, and he's giving specific instructions about what it means to live as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. And he's being very practical sometimes with things like let your yes be yes and let your no be no. If you say yes, do it. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Very practical. But then he starts to get to the end and he's, he's wrapping things down and he, he switches gears from giving instructions to giving a warning. 
And it's important that he ends this way, that, that as he's winding down, he says, I want to finish this way by giving this warning. And here's what he says, watch out, watch out for false prophets. This is beginning in verse 15. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, when he says, I never knew you, that, that, that can kind of tweak our brains a little bit. And, and he's not using that in the, in the way that, that we might think. He's not saying, I don't know your name or I don't recognize your face. He's Jesus. He knows the very depths of their heart. And it's important to understand what they're claiming to understand his response. What they're saying is, in your name. When someone in, in, in the Bible says, in your name, that means on your authority, with your express permission, that you specifically designated me as your representative. Their claim is based on their knowledge of Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, you told us what to say, and we went out and said it. You knew what we were doing. You, you, you gave us the power and we went and did it. And Jesus' response is no. When he says, I never knew you, saying, I was never a part of any of that stuff that you were doing. I was never a part of it. And there's this acknowledgement from Jesus that someone can verbally claim him as their king, but act in a manner that is completely contrary to the will of God. And that should scare us. That should scare us. Okay? For two reasons. One, because there are going to be people who from a distance look like leaders in the kingdom when in reality they're leveraging the kingdom to feed their own appetites. Okay? They're using it for their own selfish game. There's people who call Jesus their Lord, who proclaim his will, who seem to walk in spiritual power and authority, but in reality are operating outside the kingdom of God. And for Jesus and his audience, this was not a new thing. In the history of Israel, there were all kinds of false prophets. In Jeremiah 14, 14, God is speaking and he says, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own mind. And we can look today and see this still happens. We can look around and see that there are those who have learned how to leverage spirituality or religious positions to feed their own appetites. I'm sure you can think of some examples in your own mind, some examples that have been in the news or that people have been talking about. I remember a friend of mine was telling me that they were attending a church. They'd been there for a little while. They started to become leaders. They were leading a small group, and the, the lead pastor said, you guys are doing an awesome job. I'd love to just meet with you and see what God's doing in you. And they said, great. They meet with the lead pastor, and the lead pastor's talking to him, and he says to them, great. So since you're leaders now in the church, from now on, you can just give your tithe check directly to me. You, you just write my name in it and just give that directly to me. If that happens to you, find another church. 
because there's a good chance you're finding, you've, you've encountered someone who is leveraging the kingdom to fulfill their own personal appetites. We have to look beyond best-selling books, beyond well-written sermons, beyond the ability to quote scripture and look at the fruit of their lives. And this is challenging for me as I stand up here today. That, that as I stand up here today, I have to be able to say, if you look at my life, what are you gonna see there? Am, am I someone who's leveraging spirituality in order to feed my own appetite? Or have I truly surrendered to Jesus as my king? Am I deceived? And so how do we know? How do we know the difference between the false and the real? The false prophet, the real prophet, the one who's in God's kingdom or the one who's using God's kingdom. Jesus says the litmus test for this is those who do the will of my father in heaven. But you might say, hey, I thought, I thought they said we prophesied in your name and we did miracles. Isn't that a sign that they're doing God's will? I mean, that sounds confusing. That's the scary thing. We can engage in religious talk and religious activity and still miss the will of God. Jesus, though, wants us to have clarity. He wants us to know exactly what it means to do the will of God. And so beginning in verse 24, he clarifies, he starts, therefore, because there are false prophets, because not everyone who calls me Lord will get into the kingdom of heaven, because it's possible to engage in activities and miss the will of God, because it's possible for you to get confused, let me be clear. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, and Jesus, by the way, he's not using the word kingdom, but this is exactly how you treat a king. Hear their words and put them into practice. He who treats me like a king, who hears my teachings and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Put simply, we can know we are doing the will of God by treating Jesus as king and living out his teachings. We can know we're doing the will of God by treating Jesus as king and living out his teachings. When we apply Jesus' teachings to our life, we are building on a solid rock that will last. Now, let me be clear. This, now, this is something Jesus is saying. He wants people to know because he wants them to know that just because they nod their heads in agreement, just because they say, Jesus, that's an awesome point. Way to go, man. Just because they are impressed by him, just because they call him Lord and King, doesn't mean they're living in the kingdom. They have to actually walk with them as their king. They have to actually act as with him as their king. And that means applying his teaching to their lives. Now, this is not about perfection. It's about perspective. Jesus is not saying you have to get everything right. You have to be absolutely perfect and then maybe I'll let you come build. No, he's saying you just have to have the perspective that I'm your king. You just have to make the decision that you are going to surrender and trust me as the authority in your life and you are going to be building on the solid rock. Jesus doesn't expect perfection, but he asks us to trust him. I, he says, I know you're fallible. I know you're gonna get everything right, but will you trust me as your king? 
where this, this really shows up, where this, this, this sort of plumb line between whether I'm living with Jesus as king or just using the kingdom of God for my own appetite shows, where it really comes up is when my will for my life and God's will for my life are in conflict. When, or when my idea of what is wrong and God's teachings or Jesus' teaching of what is wrong are in conflict. This is where that really comes up. See, if my perspective is that Jesus is king, then when there's that conflict, when Jesus calls me out, when he is teaching, when he calls something in my life sin that I've said, I don't think that's a sin, then if he's my king, then I say, you know what? You're my king. And I, I surrender, and I'm sorry, and I confess that sin. I say, Jesus, you come to my life and help me get your perspective. Help me change my thinking, as Alan's been talking about, metanoia, repent. Change my thinking to be like yours. See, people who have Jesus as their king, they aren't perfect, but they're growing more and more like Jesus every day. But if you don't see Jesus as your king, if you don't surrender to him as your king, when you don't have that perspective, our response is different. Instead of confessing and experiencing change, we get stuck. We hold on to our way of life. And instead of growing more like Jesus, we get stagnant. See, it's easy to line up with Jesus' teachings when you agree with them. When he asks you, when what he asks of you fits your idea of how you should behave, when it makes you feel good about it yourselves, when it makes other people look at you and say, good job, when it gets their approval, when your life circumstances get better because of it. But that is not the same as making Jesus your king. We're so used to living in a republic that we want to treat Jesus like the legislative branch. Okay, Jesus, you can pass some laws. Go right ahead. That's great. You can figure it out, pass some laws, and then I'll look at them and I'll decide whether or not to veto them. You could be the legislator, but I'm the executive. And when we do that, we are operating outside the kingdom of God because we've rejected Jesus as our king. And we said, I'm the king, I'm the executive. There are times when it's obvious times when we know it and other people know it, we're just saying, I just, I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't want to, I don't agree with that command and I'm not going to follow it. And there's times when it's obvious and that's the problem. But there's also times when it's really sneaky and we justify it. And I wanted to tell you about a way I see this. I see this happening uh, in a lot of books. I see uh, what I'm about to share. I see this explained in books. I, I hear it in churches. I see it online and it goes something like this. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He says he is God and we can therefore understand God by looking at Jesus. Jesus also, his primary characteristic is love. Jesus loved all people and accepted all people. He is characterized by love. Therefore, anything that I read of Jesus' teaching, anything I read in the Bible that I think is unloving, anything that doesn't fit my definition of love, I can reject or I can ignore. Anything that I think that causes someone more hardship in their life, that causes them to feel guilty or embarrassed, I can ignore those things. That's not loving, so I can ignore that. And by doing that, we get to judge Jesus' teaching, the words of the Bible. We're getting on the throne and saying, I, if, if I don't think Jesus is loving enough or is, te is teaching them enough, then I don't have to be. I'm putting ourselves on that throne. And Jesus does not give us that option. 
In Matthew 28, 19 to 20, that's what's commonly called the Great Commission. Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey some of the stuff I have commanded you. <laughs> teaching them to obey the individual parts of my teaching that you agree with. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. See, instead of judging God's words based on our definition of love, we should be basing our definition of love on God's words. If we believe that God is love, that Jesus is the perfect representation of God, then everything he says must be loving. This is one of the reasons why Jesus is clarifying this, because we can make superficial changes to our life and never allow him to be the king of our hearts. And that's what Jesus, you know what he's really saying is, look, you can trust me. You can trust that everything I say is solid. You can trust everything I tell you. Do you know what an amazing promise that is? Do you know anyone in your life who can make that same promise? Anyone who could tell you that every word that comes out of my mouth, it is solid ground. You can trust it. You can rely on it. And, and, and it can be scary to give up authority in our life. It can be scary to sort of take the leap and say, this looks funky to me, but I'm going to trust Jesus. But when we do, we can be confident that Jesus is building, is helping us build on solid ground. And really, if we're honest with ourselves and we look at our lives, if we're really honest with ourselves, we can look at our lives and the mistakes in our lives and see we're not really good at being the authority in our own lives. So when we apply Jesus' teachings to our lives, we are building on solid ground ground. In order to do that, there are four perspectives we need to have that are, that are illustrated in Jesus's story I want to share with you. Perspective number one, everyone is building on something. Everyone's building on something. I love that Jesus uses this analogy, and he could have used any analogy you wanted, but he picks this one. Every day when you get up, you're building something. What if you approached your life in your days that way? You walk into school, you walk into your, your work, you walk out into the kitchen, and you say, today I get to build something. What am I going to build? What am I going to build on? And it doesn't matter what your past was. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. You know, Jesus is talking to these people, and, and he doesn't say, those of you who have already started building on the rock, you can now be wise and keep building on But if you've already built on sand, too late for you. You know, he says, right now, today. And this is good news. This is really good news that wherever, whatever, whatever yesterday looked like, whatever you've built in the past, Jesus says right now, today, you can build on the rock and you can begin building something that lasts right now, today. It's like every day Jesus gives us a big bucket of Legos and said, what do you want to build? What do you want to build today? Let's build something together. And, and notice that Jesus says his words, his teachings are the foundation not the blueprint. Isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't say, if you obey my teachings, then you will build a house a certain way. He says, if you obey my teachings, you will be building on a solid rock. Why does he do that? Well, I think because Jesus doesn't give you any promises about what your house is going to look like. He doesn't promise how comfortable it's going to be. He doesn't promise it's going to have a pool in the backyard. It might, it might not. He doesn't give you that promise. In fact, Jesus doesn't even promise that the wise man's house 
will be bigger than the foolish man's house. He just says only one of them is gonna last. And Jesus has a unique house for Jesus. He doesn't want us, he doesn't promise that your house doesn't look like someone else's. And I love this about Jesus. Jesus isn't into cookie cutter houses with the same size lot and the same size floor, same floor plan and everything else. That's not Jesus' style. Jesus says each one of you is unique. You have to build your own, same foundation, but build your own house. Applying Jesus' teachings in the Bible aren't gonna tell you whether to be an accountant or a lawyer or an actor or a singer, although his Holy Spirit might, but all these teachers won't tell you. What they will tell you is what kind of accountant, what kind of lawyer, what kind of actor, what kind of singer to be. And that's the firm foundation that we need. And I love that about Jesus. Number two, second perspective if we want to build our lives on the rock of Jesus' teachings, is to know there's only two choices on where to build your house. Rock and sand. Now, I know that in Arizona, if you're a contractor, you're going, there's also clay, Jan. And I know that. But in Jesus' parable, what he's teaching, he said, hey, in an internal perspective, there's two foundations, rock or sand. Building on Jesus' teaching is rock and everything else is sand. Everything else is sand. There's one rock, Jesus is teaching. Everything outside of that is sand. Do you believe that? The building on anything else, on your personal preferences, on what you see in the media, on, on, on other people's opinions, building on any of that is sand. This is why it's so important to read the Bible. You can't, this is why we teach the Bible here at our church because you can't build your life on Jesus' teachings if you don't know what Jesus' teachings are. You know, there's this phrase people use a lot, WWJD, which is, what would Jesus do, right? And I understand the sentiment about that, but there's a party that doesn't like it because it's purely hypothetical, right? You're just kind of guessing. Well, if, if I imagine that Jesus was in this situation, well, what would he do and everything else? A better phrase, though, that I like is WDTJ, which is not as catchy at all, but is what did Jesus teach? That when we encounter decisions and difficulties or difficult people or difficult situations, we don't need to ask, what would Jesus do? Let me think about it. We can actually just think, what did he teach? What did he teach? I don't have to guess. Go back and read and see what Jesus had to say. Make it a practice. You know, we, I, we, are, we are hosting a 5K here at our church later in the month, and, and, and there's this running group that meets on Tuesdays, and, and I've been joining in, and there's the lady who leads it. Susan is great. She comes, and she wants us to do well, so she, she, um, she actually has dietary things for us and says, hey, if you want to do well in this 5K, you've got to have a, a diet change. And then she comes with a calendar of exercise for every day of the week, not just on Tuesdays when we're there, but for every day of the week, there's exercise we're supposed to do. And, and she, she gives us advice on what we should wear when we're running, and she gives us technique about how we should run. Why does she do that? Because she doesn't want us sucking air. Because she wants to build a foundation of fitness so that when we run, we can run well. Jesus is the same way. He gives us his teaching because he wants to give us a solid foundation. Number three perspective, building your life on the rock of Jesus' teaching. Each one of us is responsible for where we build, okay? What made the sand builder and the rock builder different? 
Did one get to hear the teachings of Jesus and not the other one? They both got to hear the teachings of Jesus. They both knew where the rock was. They both knew where the sand was. One of them made the choice. See, Jesus' kingdom is voluntary. Jesus isn't gonna come in, press a button, make you a robot, and now I follow Jesus. You have a choice every day what you're going to build on. Every day. In that running group, Susan gives us all these things, but each person in the group has to choose whether or not they're going to apply them, right? Now let's say there's someone in our group who will remain nameless who comes and doesn't follow any of the dietary restrictions. Someone who doesn't do all the exercises on all the other days. Who doesn't buy the equipment she suggests. Who, who, who doesn't uh, practice the technique that she teaches. Does that mean she's failed? Or does that mean I haven't trusted her with the authority to do what she's supposed to do? I'm trusting my own authority and it's my choice instead of hers. And we can do the same thing spiritually. We can come to church, we can listen to messages, enjoy ourselves, and never give Jesus authority over our lives. Look, we have a great church. And hopefully you come uh, on Sundays and maybe even come on Wednesdays to Bible studies and you get an opportunity to hear the words of Jesus, to hear the words of God. You get an opportunity to, to be challenged and comforted and encouraged through those words. But we have failed as a church. If you come and listen on Sunday, on Wednesday, and then go home and continue to build your life on the sand of worldly philosophies and your personal preferences. We love that you're here. Our goal is not just that you think about God, not just that you sort of give God the thumbs up, but that you actually build your life on the solid rock of Jesus' teaching. So how are you doing with that? You know, Jesus says, if you, he who hears these words of mine, and he's referring to the Sermon on the Mount, what I want to do is I'm going to read some verses directly from the Sermon on the Mount, and I want you to give yourself a thumbs up, a thumbs middle, or a thumbs down. Now, if you don't want your neighbor to see, just hide your thumb, right? Do it in your head. But I'm going to read each of these. How are you doing at applying this to your life? And for everyone that you give yourself a thumbs down on, or maybe even a thumbs middle, make a note of it. Write it down. Write it in your Bible. Put it on your phone. Here we go. We're going to start. Matthew, four, Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How are you doing with that? Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How are you doing on that? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs middle. Give to the one who asks you, Matthew 5, 42. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Matthew 6, 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. How are we doing? Matthew 7, 3 to 5, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? 
You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Matthew 5, 27, you have heard it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do you believe that? Matthew 6, 31 to 33, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need him. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Where's your thumb on these things? If we are living with Jesus as our king, we may not be perfect, but these are all things we should be working on in our lives. Perspective number four, what we build will be tested. There will be storms. Isn't it interesting that Jesus promises storms for both the rock builder and the, uh, the sand builder? And the storms are the exact same. He uses the exact same words. The, the rain will fall, the streams will rise, the wind will blow. Look, we're gonna face storms. And they, they may be external storms based on other people's interactions in our lives or circumstances. They may be internal storms, insecurities, doubts we have, questions about our worth or value. These storms will reveal whether we have building our, been building our lives on Jesus or on sand. And that's a good thing. Because if you're a rock builder, if you have experience applying Jesus' teachings to your life, if you felt his firmness under his feet and seen him at work through your obedience, then the storm will drive you to him, not away from him, and he will keep you safe. And if you're a sand builder, as painful as it is, sometimes the storm is the best thing that can happen to you. Because sometimes we need to have our house knocked down before we realize what we've been building on. And here's the good news. When, when that happens, Jesus doesn't come to your wreckage and go, <laughs> look at you, you fool. Jesus comes with a shovel and says, hey, let's do this together. Let's rebuild. Come with me. Let's rebuild this thing in a way that will last. In a minute, we're going to have a time of worship and communion. The band's going to come out and our ushers can go ahead and come down. And as we do this, as we do this time of communion and worship, I want to give you a chance to respond to Jesus' invitation because this is the invitation that Jesus is giving is trust me as your king. It's great that you know that I love you. It's great that you know that, that I forgive you. But I want you to build your life on my teachings so that you will have a life that lasts on solid ground, that sits, that rests on solid ground. Some of you have been doing this, and that's great. Some of you have been doing that, it's great. You need to know, good job, keep building. Others of you, maybe you've never thought about this. Maybe you've never thought, man, I actually have to live my life differently. It, it, it's it, it's that, that, that Jesus' call isn't just to know that I'm valuable to him, it's for me to actually build his kingdom and build something that lasts on the earth. And so I want to give you a chance to respond. They're going to pass, the band's going to play, communion's going to pass. If you are here today and you want to make the decision, hey, I'm going to build my life on Jesus. And maybe that's a decision you've made in the past, you've drifted a little bit, and you want to make that decision again today. Or maybe it's a new decision, or maybe you just want to affirm, I am doing this. I want you to stand up. 
as you get your communion and when the band starts to play, go ahead and just stand up. The band's gonna sing the same song, reprise a song we sang earlier, Cornerstone. And it's an opportunity for us to declare, Jesus, we are going to build our life on you.